We're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Father, you have done great things for us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, who died on the cross and shed his blood and rose again, that we might have hope. Father, without Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Father, please help us to understand your word. Lead us with your Holy Spirit. Bless in the preaching. Pray that you would put your blessing upon Pastor Barry as he comes forward to share your word and to preach, to exhort us. Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified because you are due all glory and all honor. Ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'd like to particularly welcome you on this Lord's Day. My name is Barry. I'm not the lead pastor. It is my privilege to fill in today in the unavailability of one due to taking a break and the other one due to not being well this week. You may have noticed or the sound, heard a, a hissing sound as the sermon text was read this morning. It was the sound of the Apostle Paul letting the air out of the ego of the Corinthian church. The so-called super-Christians we're not so super. You ever gone through a season of grace like that? Where you realized, I'm not as super as I thought I was. I have. I, I in my mind's eye, in my own personal experience, I can vision the church that Paul is speaking to in Corinth as a group of 30-somethings who have got it all figured out, and they're right, and they're at strife with one another because they all know they're right, but they don't agree. And the Lord has let the air out of my tank. It humbled me before him and realized that it is a sin to live in disunity with God's people. It is a season of grace. As much as it hurts, and these words that the Apostle Paul speak to Corinth are strong words. Oh, Paul, 
<laughs> it hurts. It stings. There are several types of people that are identified in the Corinthian church. There's unbelievers, people who are not yet Christians. There are mature Christians. And there are also what Paul describes as immature or fleshly Christians. And of this third group of the immature Christians, Paul says this, this was excusable when you were babies. Nobody expects maturity of a baby. It's all right to be immature as a baby. It's all right to do things that, that disrupt, that, it's all, that, 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 that cause problems when, when you're a baby. Nobody scolds a baby for, for immaturity. I have a little, little one about this big uh, living uh, in, in our home right right now, a granddaughter, and, and she's immature, and nobody blames her for it. An old quote says that the church is a school for sinners, not a museum for saints, and we expect that. You've come to faith in Jesus Christ. We expect that you be immature. We expect that you're going to sin. We expect that you're going to fall flat on your face. That's what immaturity looks like in somebody who is brand new to it. But Paul goes on to say this. He says, you are still babies. You are, you're still like that, which is not a good thing. And he uses a couple of different words uh, to describe their condition. Uh, a, a baby that is uh, innocently immature, he describes as fleshly. And now Paul goes on to use a, a slightly different word that, that describes the immature Christians as also fleshly, but in a slightly different way. The, the fleshiness of an infant baby is a condition of fleshiness that can change. And Paul's addressing something, a different kind of fleshiness in the Corinthian church who are immature, who are no, should no longer be infants, and it's a fleshiness that has become their nature. You're not just fleshy because of, of condition, which can change. You're, you've become fleshy by nature. In other words, being ruled by the flesh being governed and being animated by the flesh. Let me explain a couple of words. First one is this idea of, of immature Christians. This is what an immature Christian is. It's someone who has apprehended the wisdom of God. They are a Christian. They are a believer. They're, they're not what the Apostle Paul described in the earlier chapter 2 as a natural person, where we get our word psych from, just a, a purely natural person. They they have grasped the wisdom of God in Christ. But the mind of Christ has not yet permeated the flesh, has not penetrated the flesh. The category of thought that the Apostle Paul is, is addressing is, is this. It's a, it, it's a broad category of, of biblical thinking, but it's very simply put, it's this, that, that we have been removed from the penalty of sin because Christ died, and we will one day be removed from from the presence of sin completely when we are in glory. But we still struggle with the power of sin to tempt us and to keep us self-centered. You know, many people, when they hear the gospel and they understand that it is something for them and it absolutely is 
for them. It's a, it's, it's a wondrous thing, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died for me. God loves me. All of my sins have been taken away. And they, but they receive it in a paradigm of selfishness. And that's the way that they continue on as Christians. It's all about them. It's, it's all about me. And they, they, they never mature beyond that understanding. And, and like I say, that, that foundation, that, that paradigm of thinking that is fundamentally self-centered never changes. Is it never altered? And this is why the mind of Christ has to penetrate into our fleshly way of thinking, that selfishness. Remember, the gospel is not about you. It's for you. Prepositions make a huge difference. It's not about you. And don't scarf the things of God. Take it all in as if it's, if it's, if, as if it's all about you. It's for you, but it's all about God. Solid food. Let me explain this. What is solid food? It's, it, it's not an increase in complexity. <laughs> and perhaps that's one of the things that was dividing the Corinthian church, or this so-called super-Christians, is this, this idea that, that there was an embracing or, or a finding of, of a complexity of religion or of understanding or of faith that only some of them could understand. And so I'll follow this person or I'll follow that person. But what Paul describes as solid food is not an increase in complexity. It's an increase in the penetration of the same simple gospel, the same simple message of the cross that saved us. In other words, if I ask you as a new believer, what does it mean to be a Christian? You'll probably say something like, well, God has forgiven my sins. He's taken them all away, and God loves me. And you say, yes, absolutely, amen to that. If you've been a Christian for 10 years and I ask you the same question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Then I would expect that you would understand those same simple truths that God loves me. He has forgiven my sin and he will never let go of me. And he's the most valuable treasure in the world. But I would expect that it would have penetrated deep and, and, and profoundly into every aspect of your life. And so you would be able to articulate and expound and give testimony to the fact that the grace of God has begun to affect how you understand yourself, how you understand the world around you, how you use your tongue, how you think about things, how you buy certain things. All of those things. That's solid food. When the gospel, the simple message of the gospel, penetrates every aspect of our life with the loving kindness of God. And the simple words like, God loves me, begins to be expounded by all of the immensity that is intended by God's prophets and apostles of those simple words. I love you. I love you with immutability, unchangingness. I love you with omnipotence of sovereignty. I love you with faithfulness. There are two measures of growth that the Apostle Paul identifies. One is our relationship with others. And the, and the other, the second one, is the role that we play in the kingdom of God. The first is our relationship with others. It's a measurement of growth. Paul puts his finger on the most obvious physical evidence of their fleshly rule. 
the evidence that there is something that is still selfish, something that is still self-ruled, something that is animating. And it's very simply this, that they can't bring themselves to like each other. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that way? I have. And there, there, there are seasons of life where we can go through, where we can, we can get self-deceived about these things and think, well, well, that's okay because I still believe everything they tell me and I still do all the things that I, that I know I should be doing. And we, we, we have the capacity to, to, to sweep these so-called little sins under the carpet. Well, we're not sleeping with each other, but the first thing that the Apostle Paul deals with, they were sleeping with each other, but the first thing that he deals with is that they're devouring each other. Jealousy and strife. Two of the great marks of fleshly rule. I remember distinctly standing in front of a congregation that I was pastor of, and we were having an annual meeting, and the eldership of the church was fighting. We were not getting along. And this obviously <laughs> came out in an annual meeting where we were uh, presenting ourselves to the congregation and going through the business of the church. And it was awful. It was horrible. It was, it was humiliating. And I, I remember in, in the meeting stopping and just saying to the people, I am so sorry. We're like children in a sandbox fighting over their toys. The jealousy, the strife. The greatest threat that Paul identifies of the church was not external. It was internal. And those wonderful comforting words of Jesus to Peter who said that, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. Isn't it a humbling to know? I don't know what you, you think about, what kind of forces, what kind of enemy that, that, that Jesus is addressing to us that we can have comfort, that he has victory and power over, that it will not prevail over his people. But the, the humbling thing about the whole concept is what we need Jesus' truth to apply to is not something external from us, but something in our own hearts. And claim that promise, yes, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Our arrogance, our pride, our selfishness rule. But Paul isn't content just to point out their, their flawed character. He presses on to point out their flawed thinking. And those two things always go together. And the reason we sin is because we think wrong about God we could think rightly about God, it would help us tremendously in our sanctification. And so also if we would think rightly about the church, it would help us to behave properly in our character towards one another. So it isn't just a, it isn't just a, a moral exhortation. Hey, get along. Stop it, you kids in a sandbox. Cut it out. Like, Do I have to stop the car? <laughs> There's a there, there, there's a pressing on. I know why you're acting like you're acting. Because you're, you're, you're thinking about your identity as the people of God is screwed up. And that's what Paul goes on to 
to address. Their, their character that was flawed was a symptom of, of a deeper issue of a flawed thinking. They were thinking about themselves wrongly. So how do you think about the church? Because your thinking about the church will affect the way that you act in the church and the things that you expect of the church and the things that you respect your leaders for. I remember a long time ago having, having these thoughts that I want to go into a church and immediately get the feel like I'm not in Walmart. I don't want to ever go to church and feel like I've been invited to somebody's house who's selling something and say, well, here's the real reason we invited you for dinner tonight. You know, I don't ever want to <laughs> go to a church and feel like I'm at, at, at a sporting event. Because we're, we're fundamentally unique and, and different as, as a church. And they were thinking wrongly about themselves. The church is not a nonprofit. The church is not an organization. The church is, 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 is not a business. We are not an entity that can thrive or grow merely by human industry. We have divine ownership. You, know, you can tell. You can tell so quickly when you, when you walk into a place of worship. Does, does, does the church understand that? Do they, do they get it? I think Pastor Paul said a few weeks ago that the message and the medium are connected. You can't separate the two. This understanding of, of divine ownership, the, the undertaking of divine responsibility for all that we do and say, for the effectiveness that all we do and say, and asking ourselves, well, what are the owner's tools? And so you don't see a lot of banners on the wall. You don't see a lot of slogans being used. And we don't, we don't canvas the community. What top ten things would you like to see in church? We're divinely owned. And Paul and Apollos are, are, are merely instruments. And I, and I love this idea that Paul introduces them to. You know, we are the, the name George. Any Georges here today? Your name comes, there's a George. The George, as you know, comes from farmer. This is the only place in the scriptures that Paul uses this metaphor. Don't call God George. That wouldn't be uh, respectful. But Paul introduces this idea that that there is a divine plow person, there is a divine cultivator, there is a, a divine farmer who plows the hearts of humans, and he plows the hearts of humans, sowing deeply the wisdom of the gospel. That's why we mature. That's why we grow in the Lord. That's why we can penetrate into the power of sin in our lives until we are ultimately, finally removed completely from the presence and the power of sin, is because there's a divine plow person there's a divine cultivator a divine builder paul says who builds human lives by bringing the cross near to them bringing the cross to us over and over and over again that's how i can repent of arrogance in front of congregations and meetings and in, in personal relationships because over and over and over again, the wisdom of the cross is brought into my presence by the power of the Holy Spirit through a divine builder who's building his house. I don't attribute that to any person, but thank God for persons that talk about the cross. And so that's what Paul and Paulus say. Uh, Paul is saying about he and Apollos. They're merely instruments in God's 
hand. But what hands, what mighty hands those are. There's huge historical overtones here when the Apostle Paul begins to talk about fields and and buildings that encompasses all of the Old Testament history. And if you think of the history of God's dealings with his people Israel and all of the metaphors of agriculture that are used, you are my vineyard. And I planted you. Where else do you think you came from? Do you think you're great or mighty? Do you think you were better than the other nations of the world? I planted you. Where's my fruit? Like, is, is there... Is there, is there no glory? Is there no praise ascending from what I have done on earth that is due to my name from my people who think that somehow they can attribute to their own self-worth? Or bring their own ideas and, and think that they can sanctify them by putting on the altar of my temple. The words of Proverbs 24 are so significant. A little sleeping, a little folding of the hands, a little slumber. God is not a sluggard. As a divine plow person, as a, as a divine gardener, there is no sleeping. There is no a little folding of the hands to rest. There is no slumber with God. There is no overgrown neglect because he's lazy. And the passage from chapter 4 of, of Mark uh, has a, a wonderful history of preaching about this very idea of God being the undertaker for all of Christian maturity and growth where the, Jesus says in Mark chapter 4 that the, the person scatters the seed and goes to sleep goes home and goes to bed. I, I grew up on a farm. I know what that's all about. You, you, you get the drill press out and you plant seeds all day. I've, I've, I've hauled, my dad would never let me drive the drill press because that's an important job, but I've hauled thousands of bushels of wheat and barley and canola into the field so that it could be planted. And what do we do? We go home and we go to bed. What else can you do? And that's the idea. That's the thinking <laughs> that, that, that Paul is is communicating to the church about his divine ownership of his people. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on Isaiah 28, 24 that speaks of the plowman. And this is, this is what he says, unless they are cultivated, do you know what the word cultivated? I, I hope you know what the word cultivated means. I've cultivated thousands of acres. It's a dear word for me, but I haven't heard it in years. Unless they are cultivated, fields yield us nothing but briars and thistles. In this we see ourselves, he says, unless the great husbandman shall till us or plow us by his grace, we shall produce nothing that is good but everything that is evil. You think, well, really? That, that's pretty offensive. That nothing good, absolutely nothing, unless God plow my heart, unless the gardener build or, or till my heart and, and build something and, and be the one who is building? Yes. Because you see, what is offensive to God isn't only our moral depravity, but also our ego and our pride and our vanity. So 
Paul is not disparaging human labor. He's giving it its true dignity. An amazing word. Fellow laborers with God? That's an astounding concept. I've noticed in the media once in a while when superstars of, the, of our culture, people that play hockey and basketball and football and baseball, they'll go out into a community and you know, put, their, put their practice shirts on and, and, uh, and get a bunch of kids around them and they'll, they'll go through a neighborhood and they'll, they'll pick up garbage or do something, some uh, menial task like that. And it gets national coverage. They're picking up garbage. And they're absolutely thrilled and excited to be doing it. Why? Because I'm with so-and-so. How tall are you? I can see it in people's eyes as they walk up to me and say, I know the answer to your question. They think I'm clairvoyant. The answer to your question that you're thinking is six foot five. And they're all excited. They get to do this, but it's not because of what they're doing. They're picking up garbage. It's because of who they're doing it with. And you might feel like that in the church sometimes. Like, what? You know, really? <laughs> you feel like I'm picking up garbage. But the dignity isn't invested through what you're actually doing. It's invested with your co-labor. And what a privilege to be able to serve God's people. And the laborers are, are lifted of the responsibility of growing holiness in the hearts of people. But their labor is not in vain because God is plowing and God is building and he is making holiness to grow in the hearts of his people. And that's the exhortation of the Apostle Paul. Still? Not yet? Strife? Jealousy? One of the great iconic lines in, in all of the Bible that probably many of you would be familiar with is from Exodus chapter 4, the words of God to Moses. What is in your hand, Moses? Isn't that a great line? What is in your hand? Well, it's a staff. That staff would overthrow the most most powerful nation on earth. That staff would divide seas for people to walk through. That, that staff would destroy entire armies. That staff would, would control all the elements. That was just a staff. You see, Moses was not the deliverer of Israel. Israel was being delivered because God was the kind of God that he is. But the staff, God says, what's, what's in your hand? What is that in your hand? It's like, you ever say that to a two-year-old? Nothing. Nothing at all. And we say that to God sometimes. I got nothing. What is in your hand? And you see, this is how you might feel with the message of the cross sometimes. Because that is what is in the hand of the church. But how silly would it be for Moses to stand before Pharaoh and say, like, oh, buddy, see this staff? <laughs> I got my staff. You better, you better listen to me. Oh, that's really funny, Moses. You got a nice staff there. You might feel that way talking about the cross to people. That it sounds silly. Well, I believe that Jesus lived and he died on a cross. 
And dying on a cross, he bore the sins of others. And I believe that because of that, I'm forgiven of my sin, and I'm going to go live in heaven. Really? Do you believe that? Yes, I do. It's the staff of God. The Bible's full of this message. Abraham, 90 90 years old. (laughs) That explains itself, doesn't it? You're going to have a baby, Abraham. Where does it come from? How is that done? See all the stars of the the sky, Abraham? That's how many children you're going to have. Now go up there and sacrifice your son. The message is, is the same. That I have human agency which has absolutely no efficacy without me. But what a privilege it must have been to be Abraham. Wow. Can't wait to meet Abraham. Can't wait to meet Elijah. Can't wait to meet Elisha. What are you doing, Elijah? Tuckered out. I'm the only one left. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Or Elisha, Lord, open the eyes of my servant. Help him to see that those that are with us are stronger than those that are against us. John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do not so much. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's very plain. Wow. Imagine people who thought, (laughs) imagine people who thought that somehow it wasn't true. They'd either do nothing or they would do it in such a way that would cause a lot of jealousy and strife. Three concluding questions. Number one is, am I a believer? Secondly, am I growing? Thirdly, am I serving? First one, am I a believer? It's a very significant question. Have I grasped God's wisdom for me in the cross? Or is it still someone else's religion? I was there once. It was theirs. It belonged to them. I didn't see the wisdom of it. Secondly, am I growing? Have I gone through that paradigm shift, a change of of trusting God instead of my own wisdom for every aspect of my life? Do I embrace the idea that when, that when God, God penetrates into the way that I think, to the way that I act, the way that I live, the way that I speak, that he's wanting me to prosper. He's wanting to heal me of my diseases. He's wanting to take away the things that, are, that cause real depths of pain and hurt in this world. Or do I value my own autonomy above everything? And thirdly, am I engaged? Am I engaged to, to serve in God's field? What a privilege it is to serve God's people. I'm thrilled I got to preach today. I didn't think I was going to for a long, long time. <laughs> And then Dan and I had an interesting conversation yesterday because Dan was feeling a lot better. And he, he said, well, Dan, you can... We both wanted to preach. 
And some people ask me sometimes on a Saturday night, so do you have to preach tomorrow? And, and I, I'm stealing this from another friend of mine who's a preacher who says, no, I get to preach. I get to preach. And there, uh, there is a, 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 <laughs> a shift of thinking how we view Christian ministry. I don't have to teach about kids, try to penetrate their mind with the gospel, try to display godly character to them, try to show that Christianity isn't for weirdos. I get to do that. Thank you for so many of you that serve God's people and, and so much of it is invisible and hidden. I don't have a clue what you do. I heard a story of a man who did a spiritual gifting test. He was very relieved to find out he didn't have the gift of giving. But all of us are gifted in some way. Some of you might be blessed with that gift. But if you are, it's a joy to do it. The Apostle Peter says this, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Would you stand with me as the music people come? I'm going to ask you please to stand and listen to the reading of a psalm. This is Psalm 65, and sometimes people read their Bibles and they, they don't know how to get to Christ from where they are. I hope that from what I've said this morning, in reading this psalm about God's abundance, about God building, about God plowing, about God making things sprout up in the earth. Would you just listen to it and let it roll over you in understanding that this is all accomplished for me in Christ. Psalm 65 says this, Praise is due you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed, O you who hears prayer. To you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty, and your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows close themselves with flocks, and the valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing for joy together. Amen. Praise the Lord.